We're good. Going live here. This is Discussions with uh, your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Uh, welcome to uh, my show as I go every Wednesday at uh, the 5 p.m. Eastern Standard uh, mark. Uh, for those of you listening for the first time, welcome. Uh, please check out my website, I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R, that's com slash radio, and you'll find my past guests and some of my booked guests for the future. Today we have today excuse me today we have a, an outstanding show for you. Uh Al McCoy will be joining us in about um, 13 minutes. Al is a Hammerington professor of history at the University of Wisconsin Madison. After earning a PhD from Yale, the Central Intelligence Agency tried blocking publication of his first book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. After three editions and publication in nine languages, today, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia stands as a classic, if you will, on global drug traffic. He will also discuss his newest book, which I have a copy of, in the shadows of the American century, the rise and fall of the U.S. global power. Dr. McCoy's received the prestigious Wilbur Cross Medal, presented annually by the Yale Graduate Alumni Association, and additionally, he's received what's called the Hildale Award for Arts and Humanities from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Just so happens that my uh, sister has uh, a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Al's teaching interests include modern Philippine social and political history, Southeast Asia, U.S. foreign policy, colonial empires in Southeast Asia, global illicit drug trafficking, and CIA covert operations. <clears throat> wow. So, Zapata Oil. I throw that out there because, of course, Peter Lance has been on show a couple times. And Peter has a number of Emmy Awards to his um, repertoire. Um, and his current uh, uh, project, Investigating Trump, uh, leads him down uh, many avenues. It was a search for Zapata oil that led me to Peter. And, uh, oh, there's Siri jumping in there. Um, and... Um, and we'll talk to Al and see if he uh, makes any connections. Uh, I'm sure he knows. He's familiar with Zapata Oil. Uh, but the discussion with him today is going to be phenomenal. And I'm looking very much forward to it. I think it'll be a wonderful treat for you. Let me, uh, usually here in the studio, there's a little connector that allows me to tap into my phone. Um... So we'll call Al, if he doesn't call us, on the studio line. But what I like to do is I like to uh, use that connector into the phone um, and uh, play messages for you, play uh, uh, various soundtracks or speeches or whatever. Um, take, a, take a quick moment and have a listen to, uh, to this fellow. I'm just going to pop the phone up and run it through the microphone. So here you are. Dane Wigington. Happen, it triggers many downstream cataclysms. Most people have no idea about this. Darkening snow in the Arctic. Here's a headline. Darkening snow in the Arctic. A positive feedback giving rise to more warming. Soot goes into the air, settles down in the polar regions, makes the ice dark. The ice then absorbs much more heat as opposed to reflecting it, speeding the ice melt, increasing the planetary warming overall. Same thing happening, another feedback loop with methane, which I comment about and cover over and over. Thawing tundra and thawing methane seabed deposits, methane hydrates, are releasing 
into the atmosphere, and that's covering the planet like a layer of glass. That's why nighttime low temperatures are rising twice as fast as daytime highs. Climate engineers, in the attempt to try to mask this from the public for as long as possible, are actually helping to fuel the fire. In addition to contaminating us, again, I'll get to that near the end of this program as well. Okay, so what in the heck is Dane talking about there? Well, Dan is going to be on the show next month. Dane Wigington, that's W-I-G-I-N-G-T-O-N for your Google uh, query, has a background in solar energy. He's a former employee of Bechtel Power Corp. If you're not familiar with Bechtel, that's probably because you uh, live on the East Coast. Bechtel is a West Coast but international, uh, more or less construction firm. They're a big deal. Um, He's a former licensed contractor in the state of California and Arizona for solar energy. Like me, you may have caught wind that he's talking about um, greenhouse environment climate change. His personal residence was featured in a cover article on the world's largest renewable energy magazine, Home Power. He owns a large wildlife preserve next to Lake Shasta in Northern California. I happen to drive that route frequently for about four years uh, from San Francisco to a place called Eugene, Oregon. Dane focused his efforts on energy and geoengineering issue when he began to lose very significant amounts of solar uptake due to ever-increasing solar obscuration caused from the aircraft spraying, as he also noted, significant decline in forest health and began testing and research into the geoengineering issue about a decade ago. He now is the lead researcher for geoengineeringwatch.org. Org has investigated all levels of geoengineering, solar radiation management, and global ionosphere heaters like HAARP, HARP. He's appeared in an extensive number of interviews and films to explain environmental dangers we face on a global level from the ongoing climate engineering assault. Now, why is this relevant to us apart from the fact that this planet faces what you've probably heard of in something called climate change. Okay? Um, It's a real deal. Why is it changing? Now, my first thought is fossil fuels. They're destroying the environment. But what Dane digs up gives a little different tilt to things. And this is why it applies to my angle, because about a year ago, I began researching the Zika and the Dibrom pesticide spraying. It was the Dibrom pesticide that caused microcephaly. We have the research. Yet the CDC was saying that Zika was causing the microcephaly. There's no direct link. What is happening across the globe, and certainly in this country, are aerial springs of various chemicals and pesticides. And those, as they enter the environment and the air and the atmosphere, have an effect on the air we breathe and, most importantly... If you live in the Caribbean, that would be the northern Caribbean, uh, eastern, western side, doesn't matter. Um, And in South Florida, you've experienced a hurricane. Puerto Rico is completely devastated right now from a hurricane. What Dane also digs up are studies that you can find that are very revealing and show that the U.S. government and other global governments for the past 70 years have been involved in what's called weather manipulation. 
This is all fact. Was Hurricane Irma manipulated? Dane will tell you that yes, it was. Now, whether it was naturally occurring is one thing. But can its direction and its strength be tampered with? I Meaning uh, decreased or increased or um, the direction of its angle or its flow. Can it be changed or manipulated? Yes. Okay, there are many studies uh, that show that to be true and accurate. Okay, there's another study that I want to draw your interest to, and if you want to research it, you can go into it, and I'm reaching out to these people to see if we can uh, get some more information on this, but via PriceEconomics, just as it sounds, .com, you'll find an article that reads, if you just put this into your query, it'll come up, how the U.S. government tested biological warfare on America. It has to do with San Francisco Bay Area. So we're talking about a big deal. Dan will be join, joining us next month, and you'll find his bio, contact information, etc., up on my website um, in, uh, in, 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 in the next few. Cool. Okay, so looking forward to that. Let me also mention uh, October 25th. We'll be hosting James Perloff. Okay, James is uh, an amazing author. Uh, the Shadows of Power, The Council on Foreign Relations and the American Decline. On the 17th, Mark Shaw will be on show. Excuse me, the 18th, correction. On the 18th, Mark Shaw will be on show. His recent work, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, dives into the story of Dorothy Kilgallion. I pronounced that right. She exposed some very interesting things about the JFK assassination. Folks, we're on to things that are important, whether they be Wayne Rhodes' vaccine court book. He was on show. He talked about vaccines. Whether they be Wendy Silvers, a Huffington Post blogger and activist for Million Mamas Movement, Amy Carson. Moms again, Mercury.com, or .org, rather. Michael Brill, Dr. Tony Bark, Dr. Dr. Rachel Ross. The caliber of folks that come to this program are very high because you, as listener, need to be informed with the utmost accurate information because things are happening in our world, in our environment, in our economy that only we can stand up and make a change and correct but we have to do it now, and we have to do it with strength and united, not divided. And that is what I'm, my signals, as, as, as just a human being, that's what I'm receiving is that there's too many divisions. We cannot divide, folks. We have to unite. So Aaron Elizabeth, the list goes on. The, 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 the people that have come on this show are amazing, and they're meant to inform and educate, inspire, and help you stand up and make a change for, 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 for your community, for your family, for your city, for your state, for all of this. So the, the, other, um, uh, the other addition uh, to the show is John Kiriakou. Kiriakou uh, he's a CIA whistleblower. And uh, he blew the whistle on uh, the CIA uh, and the torture uh, in, in the CIA. Um, on the 4th, let me get this uh, straight here, and then I'm going to break to uh, cut to a break and then uh, bring out on uh, the 4th of October, Christina Moss, and we'll finally get into the underlying project, uh, the local uh, Miami um, uh, Metro Rail Corridor uh, regentrification, if you will, uh, project, and, uh, and then uh, J.P. Lindstroth uh, will be joining us. Uh, he's got a Ph.D. from Oxford. And he'll talk about uh, his, book, his book, Marching Against uh, Gender Practice. So some fun things, some great things. Uh, Winwood Radio is what you're tuned into. Follow me on Twitter at I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-R, Ian Trottier. Follow me on Instagram. And uh, I'll be back with uh, Al McCoy. Yo.
not the conventional engagement of these visionary pheromones, baby. Please, please, show me. Okay, and welcome back. I'm back. Again, thanks for joining Discussion. I'm your host, Ian Trottier. This is Winwood Radio. As mentioned, we have an incredible guest today, uh, The Politics of Heron and his new book, the In the Shadows of the American Century. We have joining us today professor uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Dr. Al McCoy. Al, are you there? I am, Ian. Great to be on the show. Fantastic! Thanks for joining. Uh, your your book, the In the Shadow of the American Century, which I have actually right here next to me, uh, the rise and decline of the U.S. global power for listeners. That's very interesting. Uh, I want to kind of go over both books with you, uh, and uh, and 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 basically uh, for you to give listeners a chance to understand. Uh, what it is that they're facing in 2017 to help them help them kind of visualize um, what 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 they're looking at um, and, uh, and 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 how they can play a role in, in trying to trying to adjust what they do to better focus on improving who they are. But but really more or less in your in your book you go through a, a lot of history and that's what I love because you you really lay out. Um, uh, the British Empire, and then how how, how the American Empire uh, kind of folded into that. But uh, start we can start wherever wherever you like. I know there's a little bit of not much, but there's a little bit of uh, a meshing between those two those two projects. Um, so if you can just kind of introduce yourself and kind of take it from there, that'd be awesome. Sure, um, I'm a history professor at University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I teach courses on the Vietnam Wars, U.S. foreign policy, and the history of global empires. And uh, after, what, 40 years of teaching, I decided to take all that experience and my research into various artifacts or aspects of U.S. force projection, counterinsurgency, torture, counterterror, surveillance, <clears throat> and the rest, and uh, to put them into a single book that explores the rise conduct and the future prospect for U.S. global power. And uh, what I found is that after 60 years as the world's most prosperous, most powerful empire ever, uh, the United States is now facing a, a really serious and substantial challenge from China, and we are very close to suffering a, a loss of our global power with some serious consequences for this society. One of the things that most people don't understand about empires is that at their peak of the power, Rome, Britain, France, and all the rest, these empires look so overwhelming. Their military might, their wealth, their grand capitals, the, the panoply of power is just overwhelming. And you can't imagine how something so mighty, so powerful could crumble. Mm -hmm. But actually, empires are incredibly fragile. They don't have the resilience of even a, a moderately strong nation-state. They're projecting their power overseas in inherently dangerous and difficult enterprise. 
And once they start to unravel, they do so with an unholy speed hmm. so that one problem builds upon the other, and before you know it, it's all over. The British Empire at peak in 1900 now, ruled over directly a quarter of all humanity. The informal British Empire controlled another quarter of humanity. At its peak, Britain controlled half the world. And yet, after World War II, in less than 20 years, an empire that had dominated the globe for two centuries was gone within 20 years. And I mean gone, completely gone. And so, you know, we're facing a, a similar moment right now. We look like we're, we're uh, invulnerable. We are the, the, the world's greatest superpower. Mm -hmm. there, there seems to be no rival on the horizon that can challenge us, and yet, and yet we're, it's very fragile and we're very vulnerable. And most Americans are completely unaware of the change we're about to face. And mm -hmm. it will have profound consequences in the way we live our lives. Yeah, I think I think most Americans are certainly privy to the fact that there's a change um, in in climate. Um, that's that's uh, relevant. That's I mean that's that's uh, that's apparent. Um, that's happening, and and certainly the political landscape is getting um, uh, is getting completely. Uh, I, I frankly, I, I never thought that I would see it go the way that it's going where we have <laughs> we have different uh, people saying different things and and uh, it's almost it's almost like a, a some sort of a, uh, a comedy almost it's it's uh, it's a farce that's another attribute of imperial decline or decline of a superpower when you're on top you're you're wealthy you mm -hmm. command the global economy you have advantageous terms of trade your people are doing better than almost everybody else and they know it uh, and once that empire begins to unwind, the domestic impact is usually felt far more directly than most people can imagine. And then suddenly, in the midst of growing scarcity, uh, you get conflict. And sometimes the conflict can become extraordinarily violent. Uh, the rise of fascism in Germany after the collapse of Germany's empire in World War I. Uh, the loss of the Spanish empire led to the rise of Franco and fascism in a brutal Spanish civil war. France's loss of empire led to its army forming called, something called the Secret Army Organization. Uh, they came very close within an inch or so of assassinating President de Gaulle. They launched a sustained revolt against the French state. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that violent, but the kind of divisiveness, the anger, the division that seems unprecedented in America, at least within our lived memory, is, a, is a one manifestation of this international pressure that's coming from the loss of our superpower status. Yeah, you've got you've got a. Uh, let's see if I can find this. This is incredible. I mean, it's in the first few pages of your book. But for for listeners, and I'll, I'll just read it because um, it's it's it, it'll it'll help it'll help it'll help it'll help listeners understand where you're coming from and what you've done to get yourself to this point. Uh, which this is this is just remarkable. So um, you say uh, this is this is page eight of of, of the uh, your most recent book, and you say the next year at Berkeley for a master's degree in Asian studies, I experienced the People's Park demonstrations. Uh, by the way, I was born in Oakland. Um, that brought tear gas, riot police, and the National Guard to campus as I stepped out of the medieval Japanese literature class. A San Francisco motorcycle cop in full black leathers dropped to one knee, raised his shotgun, and pumped a few rounds of birdshot into my leg. Others, not so lucky, were hit by bigger lethal buckshot blinding one and killing another so <laughs> this is uh, uh, folks this is the this is the person that we've got on the line here this is this is the sort of thing and so what what i'm thinking of is uh, certainly a vietnam the vietnam demonstrations and 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 which which in 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 berkeley and the san francisco bay area uh from 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 everything i i know and, and i know you've done your 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 undergrad at, at columbia but, but from everything i that i know um that was kind of the epicenter of of people saying hey no this is wrong we th we've got to stop this well, that's, a, that's an example of what I was talking about. Vietnam was the greatest crisis of U.S. global power during the time of our ascent. Uh, it was a gross strategic miscalculation. Nobody in Washington had the guts to actually say, you know what, we can lose Vietnam and we'll still lose, we can still win the Cold War. My analogy of the gross strategic miscalculation is um, <clears throat> World War II. At the start of World War II, 
General MacArthur was a great hero. Uh, he fought and lost the Battle of Bataan, and there was enormous pressure in the United States to divert enormous resources away from Europe and ship manpower material to General MacArthur down in Australia so he could fight back, win the Philippines, and fight his all the way to, to Tokyo. And then an obscure colonel in the U.S. War Department named Dwight Eisenhower was asked to do a strategic assessment. He said the following. He said, we can lose the war in the Southwest Pacific and still win World War II. Uh, and we can win World War II without winning the war in the Southwest Pacific area. So in effect, General MacArthur's command is second tier, maybe third tier. Give them as little as you can get away with politically. Nobody in Washington, D.C. had the guts to say that about Vietnam. It was a huge strategic miscalculation. And the American people knew what their leaders didn't know, that Vietnam didn't matter to the Cold War. It didn't matter to the future of America. It was not worth the blood and treasure. And that great miscalculation, that strategic miscalculation in U.S. superpower status divided the nation. And uh, it really, it was 10 years after Vietnam before the United States military was really capable of mounting a serious overseas operation. When President Reagan tried for the first time in Lebanon, what was it, 200 Marines were blown up and killed, and we had to pull out. The only thing we could manage in the, in the decade after Vietnam, so weak was our military in the aftermath, was Grenada. We had to send an entire Navy carrier force to conquer a little tiny postage stamp-sized island in the Caribbean. That was how weak we were. Vietnam was an enormous blow to U.S. global power, yet we recovered. Well, this time it's not just a, a battle we're losing. It's not just a setback. This is the beginning of the end of U.S. global power because we're facing, for the first time, a serious challenge, economic and military, from a rising power that is determined to supplant us, China. And the Chinese challenge is really, I think, going to be the end of U.S. global power. If China doesn't supplant us, they will precipitate a world of <clears throat> roughly a half dozen major powers and confederations uh, so that we will become you know, just one of a number of world powers. So it's been a couple months, but I had an uh, economist, a uh, fellow named William Engdahl, uh, that uh, uh, currently resides as an American, but he lives in uh, Germany right now. And he was even alluding, he's uh, been a guest professor at uh, the University of Xi'an, uh, X-I-A-N, and also in Beijing. And he was also making a parallel in that, and, and it's it's in your in your book, The Shadows of the American Century, where the Chinese over the past uh, many years uh, have pushed hard to connect railways, and these are um, these are the the super super fast uh, the fast railways um, to Europe. Um, so, so they're 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 looking at you know connecting basically, and, and maybe you can help shape this uh, better. But uh, they they've really focused on that transportation uh, infrastructure, uh, not only domestically for them, but but with the rest of or with uh, the rest of Asia and 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 even into even into to Europe. And and I see in a map in one in, in your book that they've 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 got it projected up through. Uh, it looked like it was up to Hamburg or uh, Germany. But um, strategically, that just blows anything that we're doing here away in the U.S. Um, and yeah. so William had, uh, uh, had had spent some time talking about that. William, uh, your friend, your, Ian, your friend is, is 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 absolutely right. Okay, most Americans, when they say, you know, the the experts, they say, well, China's rising, but they can't challenge us. We're so strong. The one thing that everybody that looks at the future of China and U.S. ignores is exactly that issue, what China is doing in the Eurasian landmass. And let me explain. Look, there's a, a well-known historian at Oxford University, a historian of British imperial power, and he did a history of a thousand years of the struggle of empires in the Eurasian landmass. And he said that, you know, at the end of World War II, the United States became the most powerful empire in the history of the world, because we accomplished something that no other empire in history had been ever, ever able to do. We captured the axial ends of the Eurasian landmass. 
And what uh, that professor was meaning is that after World War II, through our NATO alliance, we had an anchor in Western Europe. And then through our mutual defense treaties with four Asian powers from Japan through South Korea, the Philippines, down to Australia, we had the Pacific littoral. And then we linked these two axial ends with circles of steel. First of all, mutual defense pacts, NATO, all the way to the ANZUS alliance with Australia. Then the great Navy fleets, the 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean, the 7th Fleet in the Pacific, and then later the 5th Fleet in the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea. And most recently in the last 10 years, we've added the last circle of steel, which are 60 drone bases stretching from Sicily in the west all the way to Guam Island in the Pacific in the east. And this was the, the structure of U.S. global power. And China is now challenging that, and it's challenging it two ways. First of all, <clears throat> China is uh, realizing the vision of a famous geographer, a guy named Sir Halford Mackinder, who in 1904 looked at the map and he said, the epicenter of world power is what he called the world island. He said, Africa, Europe, and Asia were not three separate continents, but in fact, if you tilted the globe a certain way, they look like a unified landmass. What China has done over the last 10 years is they've taken their $4 trillion surplus in world trade, much of it earned from us, and they've invested a trillion dollars in laying down an infrastructure, a massive infrastructure of enormous pipelines for gas and oil, uh, rail links that are stretching south all the way to Singapore, west all the way to Europe, and they're, they're, they're overcoming the vast distances that have historically made Europe and Asia into two separate continents, even though they're actually a unified landmass. And they're laying down this incredible infrastructure. Then in Africa, by 2025, China will have invested a trillion dollars in Africa. Already, their trade with Africa is three times larger than the United States. That's the first part, unifying that world island, that vast landmass, through this infrastructure that shifts axiomatically, almost automatically, global power towards China, siting at the middle of this massive transcontinental infrastructure. The next thing that you know, China started doing, and it's very clever, they've started slicing through those circles of steel that the United States laid down in order to, to link its axial position in the West and East and dominate Eurasia. And <clears throat> over the last three years, they've begin, by, begun building seven military bases in the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea, which is one of the world's great strategic waterways. Mm. And under the Trump administration, by the way, nobody has noticed this. In the midst of the North Korea crisis, what's happened? No more U.S. Freedom of Navigation patrols mm. in the South China Sea. We've given it up. It's, it's China's. The other thing China has done is in 2015, China's president, Xi Jinping, went to Pakistan, and he inaugurated a $46 billion road, rail, and pipeline corridor from western China all the way across Pakistan down to a place called Gwadar on the Arabian Sea. And there China has already invested $200 billion to transform that sleepy fishing village into a major modern port. And then just last year, China got another base at Djibouti in East Africa, at the edge of the Arabian Sea. So in the Arabian Sea and the South China Sea, China is slicing through our circle of control and ending our dominance over those two body of waters. In other words, the pillars of power that the U.S. has built in order to maintain its global hegemony since the end of World War II are starting to crumble, and they're crumbling very fast. Very interesting. How have the Chinese... <clears throat> done it i i see the mckinder world island and he looks like he was a founder of the london school of economics or co-founder and his alma mater is oxford what what is that conceptually what what, what is it I, I look at that and i think of yeah it's like it's 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 a, it's a, it's a, a different way of uh, you've got these people that argue the, the the earth is flat and then they draw in the un 
uh, logo and and uh, I don't remember the name of that uh, that map, but it's the conceptually how, how you look at the, the the globe on a on a on a on a uh, level. Uh, so, what is the basis behind this? Explain that a little bit more. The the McKinder's World Island. Well, Ian, almost every American kid for the past hundred years since we've had wall maps in schools and on the walls of American homes, you know, you, every, every parent puts a map of the world in their kid's room, right? And when you go to elementary school every day, it's sitting there staring at you. We've probably spent more time looking at the map of the world than we even are aware of. Yeah. And the American map of the world is, is, a, is an illusion. What we do is we have our map always shows North and South America at the center of the world. Sure. And then there are these two little blobs hanging off either side of this truncated continent called Eurasia. All right, so our, our, our mental map of the world is utterly inaccurate. We think we're at the center. Yeah. What McKinder did was he rendered a, a globe, he tilted it slightly to the north, uh, and he drew it in a way so that he focused on Eurasia at the center. And so when he reconceptualized the, the world, he saw Europe, Asia, and Africa as this unitary mass with kind of the Mediterranean is kind of like a big lake in the middle. And then there are these outlying islands, places like Greenland, Australia, North America, South America, that are inconsequential in the epicenter of global power. That was the, the, that was the, that was the thing that, that McKinder did first. But what he did, and he did this all in one lecture in front of the Royal Geographical Society on a cold London night in January 1904. And what he did was much more fundamental than that. He invented in that lecture the science and practice of geopolitics. That's to say, the, the kind of how world leaders play the game of global power like risk. Okay, <clears throat> And uh, it seems obvious and fundamental, but very few leaders can do it. In fact, in my survey of U.S. foreign policy, I've only found three Americans in the last 120 years who were grandmasters of the great game of, of geopolitics. One of them who shows how this worked was the uh, Professor Zygmunt Brzezinski, uh, who was the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter. He just died recently. Much mourned he was. A, 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 a really contrarian, emigre Polish aristocrat, brilliant man. He was a student of McKinder's. If you read Brzezinski's books on geopolitics and politics, in which he argues about the future of global power and America's place in it, he cites Mackinder constantly. He applies Mackinder. Okay? And Brzezinski, when he was given power as national security advisor, he actually applied Mackinder to see if it would work. So he had this idea, playing geopolitics, like you and I would play Risk on a, on a Saturday night. <coughs> um, he said, okay, so following Mackinder, I will drive into the heartland of the world island, up from Afghanistan, and I will drive radical Islam like a knife into the heart of the Soviet Union. And with that move, 3,000 miles to the west, I will shear away my Polish homeland, and I will free all of Eastern Europe from the Soviet oppression, the oppression of the Soviet Empire. And that's exactly what Brzezinski did. You know? And in 1998, after the, the Cold War was over, he was asked by a French publication, hey, you know, you mobilized radical Islam to do this. You know, we've got a few problems, Osama bin Laden, etc. Brzezinski waved it away. He said, what is more important in the history of the world, the liberation of Eastern Europe or a few stirred-up Muslims? Ooh. And that's the mark of a geopolitician. Great maneuvers on the chessboard, and no worries about the millions who suffer as a result. <clears throat> so it works. It really works. And the Chinese are playing it. And if if... McKinder was right. If Brzezinski is right, if geopolitics works, you know, that, that, that China's investment, yeah. trillion-dollar investment, and they've now actually got another trillion dollars that they're investing as well. And they've got a new Asian infrastructure bank that's got wow. $100 billion in capital that just opened last year oh. with 57 member nations, half the size of the World Bank. If they, if they push this through... This infrastructure is just going to, to shift the locus of global power. Now, the second figure that I found, and I explain this in my book, and not everybody would agree with me, but I, the second geopolitical genius was Barack Obama. 
Hmm. And he, he understood that China was rising. Mm-hmm. And he came up with a, I think in retrospect, what would be considered by historians of a later generation, a brilliant strategy for checking China's rise. Obama's strategy was very simple. First of all, you know, because of oil and gas exploration in North America, we no longer need the Middle East, so get our troops and our military forces as much as we can out of the Middle East and move them to the Pacific littoral and mm-hmm. reestablish America's axial control over the Eurasian landmass by rebuilding and opening military bases, reviving them in Japan, building a new one in Korea, uh, getting access to five new Philippine bases, and basing a Marine battalion and U.S. Navy ships in Darwin in the northern part of Australia because that gives you ready access to Indonesia to the South China Sea. That was Obama's first move, rebuild our control over the axial ends of the Eurasian landmass. His second stroke was a master stroke. China, we can't stop China from investing its trillions of dollars in building that infrastructure. But what Obama saw was that by two trade treaties, the Trans-Pacific Partnership for the Pacific, 12 Pacific nations that control about 40% of world trade, and then the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership for Western Europe, that control about another 20% of world trade, that through these two treaties, he could drain the lifeblood of commerce out of the Eurasian landmass, mm. out of the world island, move it across the Atlantic and across the Pacific towards the United States, and keep the United States economically strong and economically central to global power. It was a bold masterstroke. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, well... Uh, the hmm. Trump administration didn't see things that way. Oh, boy. And so, and when yeah, Trump, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. ahead. You <laughs> oh, yeah, when, as we all know, when President Trump was inaugurated in January, in his first week in office, without, you know, he, he tore up the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Hmm. Uh, the Prime Minister of Japan, you know, was calling him, you know, knocking on his door in the Trump Tower, begging him not to do that. Because the, uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan said, look, China has got something called the Regional Cooperation Partnership with 16 nations. So if you give up global trade, if you cancel this trade pact, instead of the trade flowing into America, it's going to flow into China. Um, you know, you're you're going to be diverted. The, the trade will flow across the Pacific into China instead of the other way. Uh, Abe pleaded with Trump. Trump, you know, although he was polite and seems to have a decent relationship with Prime Minister Robert, ignored him completely and canceled the trade pact. And then, of course, the, the Atlantic trade pact, without Obama's assiduous, aggressive promotion, that collapsed. And the other thing that's happened, of course, under President Trump is, and we can talk about this if you want, is that uh, the uh, axial ends of the, the world island, our position with NATO, and our close relationship with those four Asia-Pacific allies from Japan down to Australia, that's been hammered under the Trump administration. Hmm. So, Al, let's get in. I, I'm curious. Let's get into a little bit of. Um, we'll, we'll back up, and um, the the Asian angle is uh, just it's jaw dropping. It's eye opening. Um, what? How? How? How is this relevant? Um, how is this relevant to the uh, politics of heroin and what you revealed or uncovered during your time uh, studying that uh, to publish that book? You can talk a little bit about um, the information that was contained in it that, that the CIA attempted to block the publication thereof. And with that in thought, they... Just a little bit about my angle. Uh, here in uh, South Florida, we were bombarded with a Zika scare uh, about a year ago and uh, a very controversial pesticide, which uh, the island of Puerto Rico rejected uh, last year. Um, uh, coincidentally enough, they just were devastated by a, a hurricane. But the Dibrom was a pesticide that uh, was in engineered by Chevron Chemical Corporation. When I started getting into that, I 
was led to a, a fellow that, uh, that drew a parallel to uh, a, a something called the Hegelian dialect, and his name is uh, Anthony Sutton. He was a Stanford Hoover fellow. And what he kind of drew parallels to and lines to were um, control over uh, the petroleum industry, through um, which we would find through the Bush, the Rockefellers, uh, and even down through Cecil Rhodes uh, at Oxford. But uh, there's it, there's there's certainly parallels to be made there. But um, if you could briefly talk about and then connect with present day Southeast Asia and how China is uh, has moved in and, and sounds like they're completely controlling that whole region. Um, how that was instrumental and how the CIA was involved in. And of course, historically, it would have been the, the British that had kind of controlled that opium uh, trade. But then uh, Americans went in, the CIA um, had, had gotten a stronghold and of course didn't, didn't like the information that you were publicizing, so they attempted to block that. If you could remark on that. Um, you know, for two centuries in the 1800s, or the 1700s and 1800s, the great empires of the globe, the Dutch, the British, yeah. controlled the, the legal trade in opium. <clears throat> and it was one of the sources of the wealth of the British Empire. And then in 1900, as a result of uh, campaigns by partisan churches and by moralists, uh, people realized that promoting drug addiction on, a, on an international scale was frankly immoral, and we started the current policy, which is a prohibition policy. Well, drugs didn't disappear. They simply moved into a kind of netherworld of the vice trade. Uh, and <clears throat> the UN in 1998 had a meeting in the floor of the General Assembly, and they concluded that the illicit traffic in narcotics uh, was the lifeblood of transnational crime syndicates with 3.5 million members worldwide, they controlled a, a, an illicit commerce that was equivalent to about 4% of world trade. The traffic in illegal drugs was the tr larger than the tr legal commerce in textiles. And, you know, uh, textiles are one of three fundamentals for human survival. Food, shelter, clothing. That's what we need to survive. Drugs was bigger than that. In other words, power. Well, during the, the, the Cold War, when the CIA was fighting against Soviet KGB, contesting for power, formal and informal, right around the globe. Uh, the, the, the covert operatives that operated in the shadows found their natural allies in the ranks of those criminal syndicates uh, and the ranks of tribal leaders that were also producing the drugs in the, the drug source countries. And so in the 1960s, in the highlands of Laos and uh, in Burma, in the 1980s, in Central America and Afghanistan, the CIA found that its its surrogate armies, its Cold War allies, whether the the tribal militias in Laos, the Contra guerrillas in Nicaragua, or the Afghan mujahideen uh, uh, fighting the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, were were natural allies in fighting the Cold War. And they derived a, a portion of their power and much of their operational funds from the illicit traffic in drugs. So the CIA felt compelled to condone the traffic at times to allow the logistic resources to be diverted to support the traffic, uh, and they covered it up. Uh, the CIA Inspector General, for example, did a major report on the Contra guerrillas, and they concluded that during the 1980s, the CIA had allied with the biggest cocaine trafficker in the Caribbean, a guy named Alan Hyde. He had a fishing port and warehouse facilities the CIA needed to ship arms to the Contra guerrillas in southern Honduras. <clears throat> uh, and uh, uh, for five years, the CIA protected Alan Hyde from any investigation or prosecution. He had... At the same time, the CIA, like the DEA, knew that Alan Hyde had 35 ships on the high seas smuggling cocaine from Colombia across the Caribbean and right in the United States. We knew the same thing about the Afghan Mujahideen. Uh, they controlled the opium production in Afghanistan during that secret war. The opium production rose 
from about 100 kilogram 100 tons a year uh, to uh, uh, to uh, to uh, 4,000 uh, uh, tons. Uh, it went up. Uh, uh, it doubled in the 1980s, and it doubled again during the 1990s. Uh, Afghanistan became the source of between 75 and 90 percent of the world's illicit heroin supply. And the CIA was focused in both Central America and in Afghanistan on beating the Sandinistas in Nicaragua and pushing the Soviet Red Army out of Afghanistan. And it turned a blind eye to the drug traffic. Uh, and in a certain sense, in realpolitik, it was a, a demonstration of U.S. global power. We were so strong that we could even manipulate those dark forces in that covert netherworld and get a correspondence between our covert operations in Central America and Afghanistan and win two key battles in the Cold War. In 1989, the, the Soviet Red Army pulled out of Afghanistan in defeat. Uh, and in, in 1991, the Sandinistas lost power in an election in Nicaragua. <clears throat> uh, so in both battlegrounds, we won. Well, today, in Afghanistan, uh, the opium has continued to proliferate. Today it funds the Taliban. Mm -hmm. The covert netherworld of illicit drugs has gotten out of control and arguably is contributing to the failure of our mission uh, in, in, um, in Afghanistan. So it's another manifestation of how U.S. global power is beginning to wane, something that we can control, even this dark covert netherworld. We can no longer control like we once could. Now, how do you um, how how do how do you view and and this is kind of I've been directing a lot of my energies in trying to understand uh, uh, how uh, it, uh, this body um, influences uh, the U.S. and its uh, political movement and uh, strategically its global influence. How, how do you view the uh, the Federal Reserve, and, and, and I bring that up because you're, you, you're meet, you're, you, you've mentioned this uh, this uh, bank that the that the Chinese uh, have just uh, developed. Um, uh, is there a parallel between those two? Uh, can you comment in, in regard to that? Yeah, not the um, the parallel with the uh, the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank that the Chinese have created is, in fact, um, the, U the, the whole global economic order that the United States created during World War II. In 1944, there was a conference at Bretton Woods in which the United States, Britain, and the other major powers, the Allies, got together and, dis and, and agreed on how to set up the instruments for management of the global economy. And they created three institutions, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and then they created something called the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, which today is the basically the World Trade Organization. And these are the mechanisms that the U.S. created in 1944-45 to manage the global economy. And it has been, <clears throat> on the whole, um, enormously successful. The level of world poverty has dropped precipitously. Uh, in 1990, about 30% of the world's people were poor. Today, <clears throat> in, in talking about the poorest of the poor, it's only about 9 or 10 percent. Mm. This is an extraordinary achievement, a real tribute to the kind of liberal economic order the United States created. Well, China has a very different view mm. of the world. It's a much hardened, mm -hmm. realpolitik, cynical view of the world. Um, they're not concerned with human rights. They're not concerned right. with the rule of law. Uh, they're not concerned with... Uh, with equity, uh, social equity, they're concerned with power and profit. And so the kind of world order that China is presiding over as it rises is, I don't think, going to be as equitable, as pleasant, and as prosperous mm. for humankind as our world order has been. Right. And so uh, being part of the UN, are, are, do, do you think that they're Power? Do you do you visualize their power growing excessively? That uh, that that the that the UN perhaps would uh, dissolve. I mean, wh how what what is the might of the power that that, that, that they could be obtaining here? Well, uh, 
China, I think, you know, first of all, they're on the Security Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're one of the five great powers, so they've got a stake in the UN. They'll they'll keep it, but yeah. just as they built this alternative in the uh, Asian Infrastructure Development Bank to the IMF and World Bank, so they've kind of built a kind of parallel international order. They have something called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, mm-hmm. uh, and it's basically Russia, China, and other major powers from Eurasia. Uh, and it's an alternative development forum. It's an alternative international forum. <clears throat> it hasn't gotten very far yet. Uh, but I think what China's going to do is build and uh, maintain its position in the international order. I mean, uh, China, for example, likes the IMF because just in two- 2015, uh, the IMF made China's currency part of the basket of international reserve currencies. So the, the Chinese renminbi is gaining a status, you know, beginning to approach the status of the dollar. Not not there, you know, yet, but but rising fast. I mean, it's it's along with the euro, the renminbi, and the dollar. Those are the three, and the yen. But sorry, those are the four international reserve currencies. All right. So that's a huge achievement for China. Yeah. To achieve that, so they 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 like that. They like the UN because they're on the Security Council, but they're also building a kind of alternative. Uh, international apparatus, which is less liberal, uh, less multinational, more under their control. And so I think they're going to work both sides of the street. That sounds that sounds like it would be accurate. That sounds like the Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a bold vision for global power. I mean, th- this is the first time that the United States has actually had to deal with a serious challenger who's smart, who's determined, who's economically skillful, who's military sophisticated, uh, who is a skillful player in the international economy. In other words, China has everything that we have, except they're younger, fresher, and more determined. And they they have a a decision-making process for good or ill, that minimizes division, maximizes a coherent, focused strategy that allows them to concentrate their resources. In other words, for the first time in the American century, we're facing a challenger who could very well overturn us. And, man, this is not just me. Um, Beginning in 2012, there's something called the National Intelligence Council. This is the supreme analytic body among the 16 or 17 organizations that make up the U.S. national intelligence community. And they issue these, they issue these sort of futuristic reports. Mm-hmm. And so in 2012, the National Intelligence Council said, we are witnessing, this is the words of our, of our intelligence community, an historic change, a shift mm-hmm. in global power from the West, i.e. Europe and the United States, to the East, i.e. China and East Asia. They said by 2030... China is likely to be the world's largest economy, an economy larger than the United States. And this shift will mean that the United States, even militarily, will no longer be the world's preeminent power. In terms of warfare, the Pentagon did a report last year in which they said, basically, we can no longer, the United States military can no longer be assured of winning the wars that we're fighting. And uh, just last, just this year, the the most influential of all the Defense Department connected think tanks, the Rand, Cor- Rand Corporation of Santa Monica, California, issued a report called "War with China," and they essentially went through the the relative balances of forces: conventional military forces, air, land, and sea, cyberspace, uh, uh, aerospace, the missiles, and all the rest. And they said that in a war with China. It is not yet clear. It's not. It's not clear that the United States would win. In other words, we could lose. And for the first time, a major Pentagon-connected think tank has said that in a war with China, the United States could lose. Those are uh, so, stiff words. So it's a changing world. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's a uh, what's a parting? parting word that you that you have for listeners and um 
and if you could direct them to uh, 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 your books and uh, if you have a website. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, first of all, my book, In the Shadows of the American Century, it's available on Amazon.com. Uh, it's quite affordable. Uh, the Kindle version, I think, is less than $10, so it's not a big outlay. And I, I write, uh, I've written four articles or extracts from that book, which are online at Huffington Post or The Nation Magazine or at Tom Dispatch. They're just, you know, Google my name, you'll get my articles, so you can read for free. Um, my parting word, that uh, if we manage this transition successfully, we can ensure that, first of all, the U.S. economy can make an adjustment, a successful adjustment to a more multipolar world. Second, we can help preserve, if you will, the liberal institutions of global governance that are a hallmark of the American century of global dominion, uh, our commitment to the international rule of law, to the end of wars, the mediation of conflict by negotiations, the commitment to human rights, women's rights, uh, the commitment to uh, global health and international economic equity. These are all hallmarks of this American century of power. Uh, and we can assure that even though America may fade as a, a global power, these liberal institutions will survive, allowing us important international influence and allowing a more equitable and humane world that would follow us. If we don't manage the transition well, uh, we can face some uh, wrenching economic adjustments, bitter internal division and conflict, uh, <laughs> potential for conflict in the, in the world itself, uh, some woeful mi military misadventures by the United States that will have a damaging impact upon our, our global standing. In other words, this is a, a difficult and dangerous transition. If we manage it well, we can come out the other end in good shape, and if we manage it badly, the consequences will be lasting and serious. Al, thanks for coming on the program. What an honor to have you on. And uh, uh, I just, I, I, what you're doing is uh, incredible. And I thank you for your, uh, your research and, and your teaching and uh, everything that you do. Uh, so thanks for coming on the show. Ian, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye now. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Al McCoy, Harrington Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Wilbur Cross Medal recipient from the Yale Graduate Alumni Association. That was a treat. And... The words that came out of Mr. McCoy's mouth, if you will, very stern. This is a man who's studied the history of, sounds like various superpowers, he knows the signs to look for. I mean, if you look at the United States right now, we're living high on the hog. We've got a president in office who, from that angle, is certainly not as humble as the previous president. Uh, one that uh, presumably has been fed with a silver spoon most of his life. So, is he able to identify with Joe American? My guess is absolutely not. He's able to identify with what builds his pocket, fattens his pocket. But the United States overall is living high on the hog. Our currency is becoming incredibly devalued. And one thing to think about incredibly, and Al talked about it, just he alluded to it, is that the Chinese have a multi-trillion dollar surplus. 
We don't have that in the United States. We have a multi-trillion dollar debt. So what Al's talking about is very possibly a reality that most listening to this broadcast will be facing in our lifetime. So it's increasingly increasingly important that you get involved and reinforce those constitutional values and freedoms and liberties that we enjoy very subtly Al talked about what you could envision your world looking like with the Chinese at the helm of it they have a horrible human rights uh, record so definitely things to not only be thinking about but application for change I'm your host Ian Trottier iantrottier.com I've got a fundraiser going for Irma Relief. I'll be back down in the Florida Keys this weekend, donating my time, my effort, volunteering to help with uh, Irma Recovery Relief and Cleanup. Uh, This is the third weekend uh, in a row that I'll be doing that. So I thank you for listening to the program, support me, support Winwood Radio, and support my guests as we all work together to make this a, this world, this country, a much better place to live. And until next week, be awesome.